I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Nice to be talking once again on the Other Hand podcast. As always, we have a packed agenda. Sometimes I wonder if uh, there are going to be enough things happening for us to talk about. And I'm always surprised by the number of things that actually we don't get through. But today, what I'd like us to try and have a chat about are some new forecasts out from the IMF and the World Bank. And here we have a story of falling forecasts. Everybody is falling over themselves, actually, to cut their forecasts for world economic growth, to express lots of worries about inflation and, of course, the war in Ukraine. In another piece of news today, which certainly interested me, we had a CSO survey of uh, things like work-life balance. Um, I'd call it, although it wasn't call this by the CSO, I'd label it a quality of life survey, which I think had some very interesting outputs, and that's worthy of a mention. Um, And another thing on our agenda, I'll just mention three items. I've got several more, but I won't mention them just yet in case we don't have time to talk about them. But we had an interesting comment about comments on our website. We've spent some time talking about the feedback that we've been getting from our listeners. And one of our listeners has said, stop doing that. Uh, Just get on with talking about events, stuff that you guys are good at. And I'd be very interested in your opinion and indeed anybody's opinion about that. So we'll, we'll, we'll try and get to that. But why don't we start with those falling forecasts, Jim? Uh, We know we live in a very uncertain world. 
I mentioned that the IMF and World Bank have cut their forecasts today. I'm led to believe that the OECD have been also uh, due to release their forecasts and have said that they are delayed, postponed or whatever, and the world is just too uncertain. And regular listeners will know that I've got some sympathy for that perspective, that uh, forecasting at the best of times is difficult, um, but spectacularly so at the moment. So I don't know whether you've had a chance to look at either or both of the IMF and the World Bank stuff, but um, it's, a, it's a pretty gloomy story, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, Chris. Uh, good afternoon. Hello again. Um, yeah, I decided I would take a look at everything over the last 24 hours because uh, you caught me out twice on the last podcast, so I'm trying to ensure that won't happen again. Um, the World Bank's chief economist, Carmen Reinhardt, came out uh, with the latest forecast for the global economy, uh, describing it as a period of exceptional uncertainty. They have not surprisingly, um, implemented further downgrades to their growth outlook. Uh, back in January, they were talking about growth of 4.1%. This year, it's revised down to 3.2%. Um, it always amazes me. And as somebody who has prepared forecasts over the years, I think I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. When you're doing forecasts, uh, uh, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, obviously do it to a great level of uh, sophistication based on models and so on. I have always adopted much more of a um, sort of a simplistic um, spreadsheet relationship-based forecasting model. But uh, the point I was going to make was that it's amazing the way you can come up with a forecast of 4.1% because it sounds a hell of a lot more scientific than 4% and revising down to 3.2 appears to be a lot more precise than revising it down to 3%. So uh, there's a lot of optics at play here. But the point being with the World Bank's forecast, and it's hard to disagree with it, uh, with COVID-19, and particularly the impact it's having on China at the moment. Uh, I saw photographs this morning of um, hundreds of ships, if not thousands, um, waiting to get into ports in China, but can't because of the lockdown of cities and ports because of COVID-19. Obviously, that's going to exacerbate supply chain problems around the world and damaged growth, and of course, the Ukraine war and the implications of that. And um, of course, at the moment, we're now, I think, in many ways, moving into the second phase of the war in Ukraine. Um, We're seeing the remaining defenders of Mariupol, Mariupol, um, you know, fighting to the death, literally, at this stage. Um, And now the Russians are starting to target the Donbass region in the east and um, Putin also come out and said that the economic blitzkrieg of international sanctions has failed. And he uses the recovering the value of the ruble to justify that. So that's the sort of backdrop uh, the World Bank is coming from. Uh, the IMF this week is having its annual spring meeting that lasts from the 18th to the 24th. And uh, the forecast coming out of that slower economic growth and higher inflation Uh, They're looking at 3% growth in 2022, a little bit stronger than the um, World Bank's forecast. And of course, here we have a 3.6 rather than a 3.5% forecast. But anyway, uh, maybe I'm being a bit too cynical about that. But the EU is the area that is not surprisingly subject to the most significant downward revision. Um, 1.1 percentage points taken off its EU growth forecast. And uh, I think the IMF um, 
describes it very, very well um, in saying that supply shocks are coming on top of supply shocks, creating serious problems. Uh, but I also think this, to my knowledge, is the first time we've seen um, some attempt to quantify the economic impact of the displacement of people from Ukraine. And um, they specifically look at the displacement of 5 million people from Ukraine into countries like Poland, Hungary, Romania and Moldova. And the economic implications of that will not be good. Um, they also, and this too goes without saying, they say that the uncertainty around their latest economic projections are very, very considerable. So the expectation is that they believe that, well, their expectation is that they will have to revise these forecasts again. And you'd have to say all of the risks would appear to be on the downside at this juncture. But on the other hand, pardon the pun, um, the IMF also says that central banks will have to adjust its policies decisively to ensure that medium and long-term inflation expectations remain anchored. So in other words, they're calling on central banks to be much more proactive in trying to create some sort of a uh, medium and long-term perspective on inflation. And I guess that means the IMF believes that interest rates should be tightened considerably at this stage. But the IMF also says that clear communication from central banks and very strong forward guidance will be essential in this process of trying to manage people's um, expectations about future inflation. Because the one thing you do not want to see, or at least the one thing central banks would not want to see happening is that high inflation starts to become ingrained in the psyche, both the business and the personal psyche, and that this just starts to feed itself and inflation just becomes more entrenched. So, um, Bottom line from these IMF and World Bank forecasts is that um, the growth outlook deteriorating, no surprises there. Uh, COVID-19 in China and the war in Ukraine, obviously the two big issues there. And then on the other side of the equation, um, inflation becoming more deeply embedded in the system, which is a concern. Um, it ain't stagflation yet, but clearly that's where the risks would appear to lie at this juncture. Yeah, and it's really interesting that uh, on the day that uh, there's a crescendo, if you like, an avalanche, um, uh, choose what adjective you like, of downgraded forecasts, the US stock market at least is up strongly. Uh, the first thing that one might say about that, of course, is that stock markets often behave perversely. And uh, who knows why the stock market does what it does on any particular day. But it is fascinating that it has been a, a strong bounce in the stock market today, notwithstanding all that pessimism that we've just heard. Uh, I'd say a couple of things about that. Apart from the stock market is is on a day-to-day -day basis a random number generator. The uh, stock market is also a forward-looking indicator. And so the idea that growth uh, forecasts are likely to be coming down has been common currency, common parlance uh, in market analysis over the last while. The Bank of America survey of growth we mentioned in our last podcast um, in terms of expectations of people involved in financial markets for economic growth, it was published last week, hit an all-time low. Uh, so to a certain extent, some of this at least is in the price. And perhaps more teasingly, or even facetiously, I'd say that when, once forecasters are all leaning in one direction, 
there will come a point where I'd like to take the other side of that bet. And that um, they, I would say that at some point they're likely to go too far. We may not have reached it yet. You mentioned that the IMF themselves think that they are going to be cutting their forecasts again. But these guys don't have a great track record. Um, who does in the forecasting game? So I think that we need to temper our pessimism with a little dose of the, just the reality that it is extraordinarily difficult to, to figure out where things are going at the moment. But all that said, it is very easy to see why growth forecasts are coming down and inflation forecasts are going up. The headline in on the FT's website this afternoon is about energy companies in the UK forecasting an absolutely horrendous autumn for consumers in the UK with respect to the price that we're expected to pay here come the next review in energy prices the way it's done here um, in six months time and um, we know that the oil price has risen again in recent days the uh, European gas price has actually come down over the last few days Uh, just before the Easter break the European gas price hit the level that it got to the day before the war in Ukraine. So it has come down a lot. It's still very high in absolute terms relative to a year ago, but relative to where it has been at the peak of the problems caused by the Ukraine crisis for for gas prices. So it's interesting to see one commodity price come down, and that is of some very small comfort. And I say small because so many other commodities are going the other way. I noticed that corn is up strongly and is at um, a multi-year, if not all-time high. Uh, and other food-related prices are also very, very strong. And further along that particular supply chain, I know you're particularly interested in this, Jim, um, as, a, as a farming man yourself, the price of fertilizers of all kinds seems to be going through the roof. And now there are worries about next year's or next season's uh, grain uh, rice harvest as a result of there being actual shortages, not just high prices of fertilizers, that if there isn't enough fertilizer to go around, then they won't, they won't plant so much rice, and that therefore a staple food, foodstuff for billions of people on the planet is going to be in short supply. So these sorts of worries are real. I think it was the World Bank that commented particularly on food prices and said, um, in keeping with something that we've been talking about here, the, the Arab Spring of a decade or so ago was um, prompted in no small part by protests, riots sometimes, over food prices. And I think that the World Bank in particular, but I think anybody looking at this um, would share concerns that this is going to stir social unrest as well as economic problems. Yeah, Chris, I wrote a piece in the Irish Examiner at the weekend about uh, food price inflation and... uh, we look at the latest data of the United States showing food price inflation year on year, 8% increase uh, across the European Union. I think it's pretty similar uh, here in Ireland in the year to March. Um, food price inflation was running at 3%. That was the highest level since the end of 2008. And I was basically arguing that there's a distinct risk that food will take over from energy as the issue of serious concern for people here in Ireland um, in the context of cost of living pressures and so on. And as you know, uh, the government has stepped in um, with significant, well, sorry, with several rather than significant, with several interventions to try 
and alleviate the cost of living pressures on households coming from the energy front. Uh, but I, I would fear over the coming months that they will be expected, the government will be expected to likewise on the food price front because um, it, it does seem inevitable to me and insofar as anything can ever be inevitable in this world that you will see significant food price inflation feeding through the system um, for reasons which you've mentioned there. But the soaring fertilizer costs is the obvious manifestation of the crisis in Ukraine at the moment and the impact that's having on global potash supply. Uh, but there is also and, and indeed uh, something I do, I tend to analyze regularly input costs to farming here in Ireland and all input costs have increased dramatically over the last 12 or 18 months. Fertilizer, energy, labor costs um, being the major inputs into most farm production in this country and prices have increased dramatically. But uh, that doesn't sort of uh, tie up or is not quite consistent with what we're seeing on the retail price front with inflation still running at just 3% year on year. And one of the big questions, of course, is that over the coming months, um, I am saying there's significant risk that food price inflation will rise significantly higher. But of course, a lot of that will be dependent on how the very competitive retail grocery sector behaves here. Because what we've seen for over a decade, largely because of competition in the retail grocery space, emanating from the two discounters, German discounters, Aldi and Lidl, who now control about 25% of the the retail grocery market here. They obviously um, have a strategy of price compression. And of course, the other retailers have to follow suit. So this, this thing just doesn't add up because if we continue to see compression on the food price front, clearly it's the primary producer that's just going to be squeezed out of business. So... I think something has to give and I think what will give is the fact that food price inflation is likely to pick up. Um, I, I mentioned those input costs and fertilizer particularly, but uh, wheat is an incredibly important export from that part of the world, from Ukraine and Russia, and um, is also an incredibly important part of a lot of food production. And, um, you know, the food wheat prices have obviously increased significantly, but also there are significant fears about 12 months down the road, what sort of wheat supply will you have coming out of that part of the world? Because with the war going on, putting seeds into the ground isn't exactly um, something that's easily done. And indeed, I saw a piece of video from Ukraine today, um, Ukrainian farmers uh, wearing anti-flak jackets and sort of... uh, defense um, clothing sorry technically I'm not quite sure what the description is here but uh, clothing that protects them Um, and at the same time they're on tractors setting sunflower seeds so it just shows how precarious food production is and of course now is when you're you're planting the wheat crop that will be harvested next um, autumn into winter so there's there's a significant risk there, and you mentioned the, the what's happening on the rice front. Uh, there was a story during the rounds today that rice farmers across Asia are cutting back significantly on their use of fertilizer to grow rice because of the sharp escalation in the price of fertilizer. And um, I didn't realize actually, and it's, it probably makes logical sense, but 
rice feeds half of humanity at this juncture. So if you use just less fertilizer, you're going to get much lower yields. And as a consequence, you're going to have scarcity of rice. So it's uh, it's 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 a serious problem. Yeah. And um, as I say, it's very easy to to be pessimistic and um, tough to see how we're going to get through this without some kind of serious mishap either to our economies and or to to financial markets. It it does feel very grim today. And um, I wish I could point to something uh, firm and tangible that would lead me to take the other side of the IMF forecasts to start leaning the other way. But I must say that I've seen nothing yet. And I do wonder about that stock market reaction to, to all of this pessimism. But on a more optimistic note, Jim, I just wanted to change tack and talk about another piece of data or large data set that was released today by the Irish Central Statistical Office. And I'm doing this partly because it's interesting in its own right, partly because it is a, a more optimistic antidote to all of that pessimism about growth and inflation that we've just mentioned. The CSO have released their annual personal and work-life balance survey for 2021. Now, obviously, this is backward-looking. It asked people over the last while various questions about their lives and how they felt about the way they're living, the way they're working. And that might be changing as we speak, but it is a very interesting snapshot. For me, it's fascinating in one particular regard, because if you listen to opposition politicians in Ireland, I've often marveled, and I think I've said on this podcast that you would think listening to those politicians that are, and, and indeed some journalists mentioning no names, uh, but some journalists regularly write an article or two about how hellish modern Ireland is. And this survey asks people several questions. Um, the first one is about their jobs. And um, nine in 10 people are satisfied with their job. And uh, things like promotions and whether or not they turn down a better job, those sorts of questions all point to people essentially being happy with their jobs. It's self-reported. Um, there's no reason why these people should be fibbing. But certainly from a working point of view, there seems to be an awful lot of happy people in Ireland. Asked about their lives and a simple question, are you satisfied with your life? 89% of Irish people in this survey said, yes, I am satisfied and only 11% said they were dissatisfied. Of those 11%, nearly 60% said that they have difficulty making ends meet. So there's an economic dimension to that dissatisfaction. 15% were in bad health. So there is therefore a non-economic um, social health dimension to the answer to this question. Obviously, um, people in bad health can also have difficulty making ends meet. So those, those two categories um, sometimes overlap. And in general, this survey, at least my take on it at a very headline level, is a very pleasing anecdote to, the, to this narrative that we see peddled by politicians, some politicians and journalists, that Ireland is some kind of awful cesspit where existence is very tough, very hard and very bleak. Did you make anything of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredibly upbeat survey, really. And uh, it, it does show those very high levels of satisfaction with working arrangements, with life generally. Um, and it is, I think, um, a strong 
positive assessment of quality of life in Ireland. And uh, this, of course, flies totally in the face of some of the popular narrative we see out there. Um, if you listen to what people before profit and indeed Sinn Féin pedal on a consistent basis, um, you know, our, Ireland is a total bucket shop. It's the worst country in the world to live, et cetera, et cetera. We have the worst health service, the worst education, the worst roads, the worst broadband, you name it. Uh, and that we're a very, very um, misfortunate race. But this survey flies in the face of that. And indeed, um, I live here in Ireland so I guess I'm very engrossed in it all. But you as an outsider that who currently lives outside of Ireland, having lived here for a number of years, um, you have always sort of looked in and thought that Ireland is a pretty decent place, place to live. And yeah, I, I've always had that perspective. And unlike many of those um, Sinn Féin and people before profit politicians, I exercised my my choice i lived in ireland for for three decades and um i must say jim that uh, i never really recognized that narrative that we we have often talked about on this podcast speaking of uh opposition politicians i was fascinated to see over the weekend a, a long-form article from naomi o'leary in the irish times which was a fantastic piece on two of your meps and their attitudes to various things, and in particular their connections with things Eastern European and things totalitarian East European. Um, These are two politicians that I know you admire greatly, Jim, and um, I was wondering what you made of this piece. Were you disappointed to see your friends in Brussels traduced in this manner? Okay, Chris, uh, before I address that point, uh, just to sort of wrap up on that whole quality of life issue and this CSO uh, survey result today um you know that the the, bo- the bottom line is that there is political capital to be gained for some people out of persuading us as many people as possible that things are awful here because uh clearly the one thing opposition parties like Sinn Féin and people before profit people before profit could never come out and admit is that actually things are good in Ireland and it, it's a good place to live etc because uh that damages their their election prospects and so on because it is an explicit admission that perhaps the government is doing a better job than the opposition and supporters of the opposition parties might actually like to claim or believe so uh, it, it has to be seen in that context i mean i would not be naive enough for one moment to suggest there are not challenges here there are challenges here and that survey also shows where those challenges come from um, for people who are currently not in employment, for example, the main barrier to work was long-term health problems, followed by caring for a dependent family or friends and childcare issues. So these are clearly issues. Housing is clearly an issue. Access to the health service on a universal basis is obviously an issue. There are issues, but you show me a country where there are not issues. Even, yes, that's an important point, Jim, which, and by the way, I'm not letting you off the hook on asking you about your... Nor do I want to be left off the hook, okay? ...about our friends in Brussels. But on that point about show me a country that doesn't have these problems that I think that you just made, that's an excellent point. Um, I just uh, spent some time in Canada and was fascinated to read lots of articles in Canadian newspapers about the difficulties they have with their health service. We imagine Canada to be a modern... 
um, forward-looking, uh, well-run country, which it is, and it's a, it, it too is another country where it's marvellous to live. Um, but again, not without its problems, particularly when it comes to housing and health. Its house prices, particularly in its major cities of Toronto and Vancouver, where in those in the, in, the, in those urban areas, um, frankly, most of Canadians live, house prices would um, make Irish house prices look cheap, Jim. Um, trust me, it's an extraordinary state of affairs. Um, and you, one reads articles about the difficulties that they're having with their health service and the, the way in which it's run and the difficulties people have getting access to it, even though it is, it is a state-run uh, system. It's different to the way both the British and the Irish systems are run, but it is free at the point of delivery for, for most Canadians, although it is, it is more insurance-based and the government is the the people, the, the entity that provides the insurance. It's, it's a different system, but it does have a lot of the common problems that you identify. I've also had occasion over the last number of years to, to be sitting in accident and emergency and casualty in France, not for myself, but for a couple of people that I have been on different occasions with in France have got into a little bit of bother health-wise um, and nothing serious, I, I, I stress, but um, the weight, the way you are treated and the sort of <clears throat> service that you get in these French A&E places that I have been in would remind you of the difficulties that we face here in the UK and the difficulties that you face in Ireland. And more generally, the point is that no country has cracked this health issue to the point where there is a uniform belief that they, that health is um, something that is sorted, that isn't something that could be done a lot better. If it was easy, all these countries like Britain, France, Canada, the United States would have health systems that I think um, people wouldn't complain about. It's not easy. And when political parties pretend that they have the solution, be very, very wary about what it is that they're peddling. Housing is another one I could say the same sort of things about. If housing was an easy issue to crack, and all of these countries have their housing issues as well, then it would have been done already. And um, all of these countries are wrestling. With, you should see house prices in the United States at the moment. Just extraordinary what's going on there. So yes, we've talked about this a lot before, and no doubt we'll talk about it again. But yeah, um, Ireland is by no means unique in having housing and health issues. A lot of the problems that Ireland faces, and you're right to identify them and to acknowledge them, but you're, we keep banging on about the fact that these are very, very tough policy nuts to crack. And yes, we could be doing a lot better, absolutely. And you and I both have got lots of suggestions about how we could do it better. But to go around pretending that there's a magic wand, that we have the solution and nobody else does, I think is a conceit and it's just dead wrong. But Jim, back to your new best friends in Brussels. Yeah, well, Chris, I, I have spoken um, on a number of podcasts about um, how embarrassed and ashamed I am that Claire Daly and Mick Wallace are both representing Ireland in Brussels, uh, given their behaviour over the last number of months vis-a-vis -vis the situation in Russia. Um, I, I, I think the... The, the the Russian situation, you know, is pretty binary. Um, they they are slaughtering um, innocent Ukrainians on a daily basis. Um, but the the point about Naomi O'Leary's piece, you know, she looks at what they've been saying. She looks at the amount of coverage they've been getting um, in authoritarian regimes, and we've seen Claire Daly's speeches in the European Parliament being used by Russian media 
um, as an indication that there there are people out there in the Western world who actually support uh, the, the Russian stance. And that may be a correct or incorrect interpretation of those speeches, but that's how the Russians are using it. Um, and I, I saw a, a clip of Naomi O'Leary. It was probably yesterday um, or maybe this morning, but she was following Mick Wallace into the European Parliament and she was asking him a number of questions about the their attitude to freedom of the press and about the fact that they actually have threatened and are suing a number of media outlets that have actually um, criticised them um, in relation to the stance they're taking. Uh, but uh, I have to say, I found Naomi O'Leary's piece um, incredibly compelling, a superb piece of journalism. Yeah, absolutely. And um, congratulations to her. In another Irish Times piece, which I think might have been out today or yesterday, uh, there was a specific uh, reference to Sinn Féin expunging its record on uh, whatever support it may have given to uh, Russia in the past, because um, there have been several notable uh, quotes attributed to them from the past in, in terms of offering support to Russia and indeed their criticisms of all things EU. We must always remember that Sinn Féin have been as opposed to the EU at, at times. The, the difference between them and the Brexiteers struck me as being non-existent. Um, but somebody wrote this morning that they have uh, basically cleared their website uh, prior to the last couple of years, um, deleted everything on their website so that nothing can now be referenced or checked back to them. So that's an interesting attempt to not so much rewrite history as, as delete it. And I think people need to um, always be aware of what uh, political parties like Sinn Féin, not only Sinn Féin, but like them, have said about the, Russia, Putin uh, and the EU. And it, it's, um, it does, for me, always make for very sinister uh, reading. Uh, well, this, this is Sinn Féin basically um, on the process of transitioning into power. And uh, this presumably is an essential part of that. And that's exactly what's happening. And the, the, to the, the headline on this piece in the Irish Times was that Sinn Féin had a good pandemic, but is having a terrible war because of its track record in um, impl implicit or indeed sometimes explicit support in the past for things, Russian things, Putin-esque. So, and that, uh, one wouldn't read too much into one opinion poll, but it's we had the first opinion poll over the weekend where Sinn support fell a bit. It's been on a upward trajectory, you know, all through the pandemic years. And um, it would be very interesting to see if this, this new dynamic um, begins to change. Um, one can only hope. Jim, um, we've taken uh, uh, all of our allotted time today. And as always, we've left something on the agenda, but that's, that's good. Let's cover the rest of the agenda and anything else that comes up in our next podcast. Um, good to talk again, and we'll speak next time. Uh, I should just point out, Chris, vis-a-vis uh, -vis our last podcast, uh, Waterford actually won that game in Walsh Park on Sunday. You'll be glad to hear. By how many runs? <laughs> By how many runs? Good luck. <laughs> Goodbye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, 
cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.